This morning, we are going to look at this uh, second part of mingling with the masses, dealing with believers and non-believers, those that we come in contact with day in and day out, and learning what to expect in those interactions. Um, I think that knowing what to expect from a biblical standpoint helps us to be compassionate. I think it helps us to be effective in our witness and consistent. So I think it's good to have an understanding. Um, last week, as we looked at this, we drew some applications from 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to draw some further applications from that passage. Uh, but as we introduce this principle, we determined that we as believers, if we're going to be those who are engaged with, and we should be, as part of our calling as believers, uh, we need to be engaged with the word. We have to found ourselves and anchor ourselves there in that truth. We saw David who sincerely wanted to serve the Lord. He desired to do something that was good and appropriate, but he didn't do it in a manner that was consistent with what God had revealed. And ultimately, that brought about death. And so we want to be those believers who are operating in consistency with God's word. And so we have to be those who are constantly engaged in the word. As we read in, uh, in Paul's writings to Timothy, that we are those approved workmen. And so we want to have those uh, that, it, that uh, be those who are studying to show ourselves approved, that we can rightly divide it, we can understand what it says so that we might know the truth upon which we stand, so that we might know what we're representing and how we might represent it well in an, in an appropriate fashion. And so today, we're going to once again turn our focus on David. We're going to look at that. Uh, we see him endeavor again to honor God, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, but this time he does it in accordance with God's word. Uh, and we're going to read about that. We're actually going to read about that in First Chronicles. It's, it's, 15 there's there's a few more details there that we don't get in second samuel but and and in fact what we find is that david exudes zeal for the lord that he's dancing that there is a playing of music and and offerings that are given and his actions aren't well received by everyone that those of us who are dealing uh with the world around us and we're passionate and zealous for our service to the lord may not be well received and we have to understand that, and we need to sort of understand what the Bible says the why is. And so we want to draw some applications there as well. Uh, so if you'll turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we're going to turn there, as I said, we're going to read uh, sort of what's happening there for better insight. Uh 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we're going to skip around a little bit. Let's read verses 1 and 2. And David made him houses in the city of David, and prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched for it a tent. And then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God, but the Levites. For them has the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God, and to minister unto him forever. And we remember that last week when they first went uh, to get the ark, they put it on a cart. They didn't do this, and we, we took some time and we laid some historical context and that was our basis for understanding that we need to do things in accordance with God's word. So here David has, they, they failed, uh, Uzzah's died, they put the ark in Obed-Edom uh, and he does some Bible study. 
He gets engaged with the word and he says, listen, the Levites, the Kohathites specifically, those are the people that God has chosen to minister and to bring these things, to pack these things for him. And so we're going to do this differently. Jump with me down to verses 12 through 15. So he's speaking to the Levites and he said unto them, you are the chief of the fathers of the Levites, sanctify yourselves both ye and your brethren that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. David here is in, in fact repenting. Listen, we did things. They were sincerely motivated, but they were wrong in the way that we did them. We were not walking in obedience to God's word. We, we had pure motivations and the wrong methods. And so he says God put a breach upon us. There was discipline. There was something associated with our sin. We have to learn from that. Verse 14, so the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. So they do it right this time. They take the time to know what God has said, to do it in the method, in the manner that God has said to do it in. And I want to look here, if you'll hold your place in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and also turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's look at what David did. Okay, let's, let's review what he actually did. Because upon an initial reading, we may overlook some of the specifics and some of the details here. So first, in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 6, And it was so that when they, they, they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he, offered, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. So, and we read about this as well in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 26. Same thing, the, the offerings that were had. Now, in 1 first, first Chronicles 15, there's some further description about what they offered and how many they offered. I think I made the statement last week that, uh, and some commentators will say this, that they offered offerings every six steps. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think I said that last week, uh, but I just want to clarify that they probably made this offer. In fact, let's read in First, First Chronicles 15, verse 26. It says, And it came to pass, when God helped the Levites that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. So when they realize that, listen, God is accepting of our method now. We're doing things according to God's word. We offer the sacrifices, and, and we'll talk about what these sacrifices specifically meant because there is some significance in what they offered and why they offered them. So they offered their sacrifices when, hey, here, here's God's with us. We're reaping success of, of following what God has said. So they offer some thanksgiving offerings. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 14, uh, chapter 6, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. Now the word danced here is somewhat uh, subjective. It really means to jump or skip. And, and really what it's signifying is this act of rejoicing. 
It's like a child that jumps for joy, right? You bring out the cookies, you bring out the, the birthday cake, and they jump and they bounce and it's excitement. That's kind of what's being represented here. Uh, dance is probably an appropriate comparison in some respects, but it isn't a formal dance per se, uh, according to the original language. I'm not saying that dancing is wrong or bad or anything like that. I'm just clarifying that this is what's happening. It's an act of rejoicing. It's something that David is doing because of the enthusiasm that he has for serving the Lord. In verse 15, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 through 28, there's some other instruments that are associated with this noise. Now, it doesn't necessarily indicate that it is a, uh, a processional band, as it were. Right? This is not a marching band going before the ark necessarily. But there is shouts of rejoicing and thanksgiving that this is what's happening, that we are now, as a people, bringing the very ark of God where he will dwell with his people to the place that David is now prepared so that he might dwell with us. There's a rejoicing and a celebration, not only amongst David, but amongst the 30,000 people that are with him. And that's what's happening. And it's probably a sort of a cacophony. You have trumpets blaring, you have cymbals, and all these things that are happening, uh, probably less organized than we tend to think of it. But it's rejoicing. And I wouldn't say that it's chaotic per se, but it's very symbolic of, of, of what is happening here and their heart and the significance of the event. Sometimes we miss this. They've been separated from God, as it were, through the sinfulness that had it come into the kingdom. And for a period of time, Saul, the first king, didn't pursue God in a way that would cause him to want to build a place for God to dwell with his people. He didn't establish a city. God never established a city with them, uh, with Saul, like he has with David. There was, the, the, there was a tabernacle in Shechem, and God allowed David to build and prepare a place in Jerusalem, in the city of David. So there's this coming together where the nation is now aligning itself under the Lord. In verse 17, of 2 Samuel 6, and they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the, excuse me, in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. Okay, so there are burnt offerings and peace offerings. Um, turn with me to Leviticus for just a moment, because let's talk about these offerings. And in fact, the offerings that are being offered here are the same kind of offerings that would have been offered. Leviticus chapter 1, same offerings that would have been offered by the Levites when they had taken their first six paces. When it was clear that God is supporting of what is happening, that we are now operating in accordance with His will, they offered two kinds of offerings. They offered an atonement offering, a sin offering, and they also offered a thanks offering, a, a rejoicing, a celebratory thanksgiving offering. Let's read about these. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. 
And if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So the first offering that they offered, as we look uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, and we see the offerings that were actually offered by the Levites, was a burnt offering. They offered burnt offerings. They were asking for forgiveness. They were, for lack of better terms, commemorating and seeking God's forgiveness for their sin in doing it wrong before. This is how we pursued it. This is what we engaged in. And it was wrong, even though it was sincerely motivated, it was incorrect. It was not in accordance with God's revealed will. It was not in accordance with his instructions. So therefore, we have to call it sin. And they offered us an atonement offering, a sin offering for that. And here is David, as they bring the ark into the tabernacle and they establish it in its place, offering a sin offering. And when, we, when it says that David offered these offerings, David is going through, and if we read in First, uh, First Chronicles 15 and 16, we see that he's not offering these offerings himself. He's doing it as God has prescribed, where he's bringing the offering, and the Levites are doing the work that they're supposed to do. So he's working in accordance with God's will still. Not only that, it says that he brought a burnt offering and a peace offering. So if we jump over to Leviticus chapter 3, Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or a female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door in the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle uh, the blood round about the offer. And he shall offer the, uh, verse 3, of the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covered the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and the flanks and the call above the liver which with, with the kidneys. Verse 5, And Aaron's son shall burn it upon the altar, upon burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So the, these peace offerings, peace in some respects is a poor translation. And I hesitate to say translation because I am not a Hebrew expert. Okay, but what it is signifying is the thankfulness, the rejoicing. It's a thanks offering. This is what God has done, and so we're celebrating what he's done. That's what they offer. We offer a sin offering because we've messed up. We're asking for forgiveness. And we're not only asking for forgiveness, but we're rejoicing that now God is in this as we're doing this in accordance with his revealed will. That's what the priests offered after they'd taken those first six steps. And it's clear that God is in this, that we're doing this according to his will. We're doing this right. So let's give a sin offering, an atonement offering. Let's give a thanks offering. Let's rejoice about what God is doing. And that's exactly what David did. He brings his own offering because here it is. We've done it. We've brought it to the place that God is now going to dwell with his people, and there's a celebration, there's a rejoicing, a thankfulness for what God has done. The last thing that David engages to do here 
is to bless the people. David's desire isn't that he himself as the king of Israel would be blessed. He desires that Israel as God's people would be blessed. You remember that when he brings the, when they can't take the ark in, they take it uh, to Jerusalem, they bring it into uh, Obed-Edom, and it sits there, and the people there are blessed for three months, the three months that it is there, and that's the motivator. David hears about that. He's like, okay, we're going to do this. We're, we've done it right. They hear about what God has done, and his desire is to bring this into the capital, to the place where God has said, this will be where we establish our national regime, as it were. David's desires that the people would be blessed. And so he signifies that he, in verses 18 through 20, saying unto the, uh, well, that's the wrong chapter. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And as soon as David had made an end of his offering, burnt offerings, and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. David signifies his desire that God would bless the nation by giving all of Israel something to eat. I mean, this is, this is a celebration. And everyone is receiving from David the king. From, and so you consider the investment that's made here. David's given of his time. He's given of his wealth. He's given of his worship. And he's given of himself. And we're going to look at those things to some degree this morning. That This is what David is doing. Now, zealot, as we read through the New Testament, zealot means something different. Okay, But, but a zealot literally just means that a person is fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of their religious, political, or other ideals. Or that they're uncompromising. We're unwilling to change. Uh, this, in my opinion, is where we see zealots today in sports, right? The guys that wear the cheese on their heads in Wisconsin in the winter and don't have a shirt on, that's a zealot. I, this is the way that I am a fan for my team. This is what I have to do. I have, and, and they're uncompromising. Every game they're going to do it. They're going to show up. They're going to spend their fortune on the season tickets. They're going to go out of their way. They're going to give up all of these things. And we look at it, and, and unless you are a zealot for your team, you shake your head and you're like, I don't even understand. I don't understand. I'm not. I, I just don't. I'm not a sports guy in that way. But there are people that are. So, so to me, this is the clearest modern parallel. It's probably not the only one, but there it is. Zeal is often cast in a negative light. And, so, and with good reasons, sometimes it is negative. It's pursuit of all kinds of other things that we as believers shouldn't 
necessarily be pursuing to the degree that we're pursuing. But it's not always a bad thing. And in fact, as Christians, we should be characterized by some amount of zeal, enthusiasm, uncompromising pursuit of our worship and service to God. So that when we stand here in the minds of the quote-unquote respectable people, we're going to certainly be cast as zealots. That we would give our tithes to those things that God is engaging. Why would you give your money to those things? That we would spend time engaging with one another, that we would converse, that we would sacrifice, as it were, time, self, reputation, whatever it may be, for the Lord, so that we might represent Him. And just because there are people that would push back and call us zealot, call us fanatic, call us ridiculous, don't count that as failure. If we're doing Christian life correctly, we should expect to be unpopular. We should expect to be viewed and cast as strange, as fanatical, as radical, as a zealot. We should expect critics. And, and we talked about this to some degree last week, but I want to give you a textbook definition from a biblical standpoint of what a zealot looks like, what a Christian zealot looks like. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Verses 29 through 30. Here Jesus is asked by the scribes, they're trying to Catch him in his words. And they ask him, what is the first commandment of all? In other words, what is the most important thing that we would do for God? That's their question. That's, that's ultimately what they're asking him. And Jesus answered, he says, this, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So Jesus begins to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The great Shema, here it is. God exists, he is one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. He goes on to tell you what the second is. And the second is that we would love people as we love ourselves. But the first commandment sounds somewhat fanatical, doesn't it? That you would love God, that you would desire to serve Him with everything that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything. Right? That's the Wisconsin cheesehead. No shirt, middle of winter, body paint. Shirt. I mean, you can see it, right? Woo! We all know that guy. That, that's fanaticism. That's zeal. That is a textbook definition of zealot. Yet here is what God has commanded, that we would love him first and foremost with every part of our being, with everything that we are. We would read it this way, looking back on what Jesus has done for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is labeled as our reasonable service. That we would lay down our life, heart, soul, mind, strength, 
as a living sacrifice. Just as David was offering sacrifices, we bring the sacrifice of ourself. And we do this as our reasonable service. It's the least that we that, that could be expected of us in response to what God has done on our behalf. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, David encounters pushback. He encounters those who are less than enthusiastic about his pursuit of the Lord, and in the same way that we are going to. Now, David encounters them in his own house. How come I can't find 2 Samuel? There it is. And I'll just tell you, I mean, I'll just preface this now, right? I'm going to make Michael, in my opinion, is the bad guy in this. She, she's the antagonist. David's wife is the one that encounters him, and she's not pleased. In fact, we read in verse 16 of 2 Samuel chapter 6, and as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, so here's David, he's coming in, he's, he's skipping, there's the, the cacophony of all the trumpets and all of those things, there is the celebration of the people. There is the giving to everybody. There are the offerings and the sacrifices that are being made. Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So here's David in his zeal for the Lord, celebrating and rejoicing, giving thanks for all that he's done, rejoicing that God has now come into the presence of his people, and we are in relationship with him. He's going to be right here with us. And she's not really pleased about the zeal that he's showing. There are those that, that would disagree with some of the assertions that I'm going to make this morning. Uh, I don't think that David has done anything inappropriate here. There are those that talk about David being without clothes and all these things. You know, listen, it tells us both here and in Chronicles that he's got on a linen ephod. He's not wearing his kingly clothes, but he's wearing clothes, right? I mean, he's not naked. He's not doing anything that is inappropriate or out of whack. He is simply leading the procession of rejoicing and celebration. Uh, but I just bring up that like, there is not 100% consistency. We're going to talk about some of the reasons that I that I feel like this is the case uh, as we progress a little bit this morning. But uh, for sake of application, there we are. If we look at verse 20, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and in my opinion, this is just dripping with sarcasm. How glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of all the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Listen, David, you were just like all those fanatics. You were like all the rest of the cheeseheads. There you were out there taking your shirt off, painting your body, spinning the thing in the air, shouting and screaming. You're just like all the other fanatics. You're just like all the other zealots. There are going to be those that are not receptive to what's happening. Christian zealousy is not wanted. It's not wanted by the world. And we're going to talk about that as we progress this morning, why it's not wanted by the world. Because we need to understand where they're coming from. It helps us to be effective in our witness. But it's not always welcome or desired even in the church. 
that we would be somewhat offensive, that we would stand wholly and solely upon the word of God and that truth, like we talked about last week, and let that be the source of what we're going to talk about and how we're going to do it. And all the more, I'm convinced, because we we read uh, Paul's words to Timothy that, listen, there are going to be those that heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. We just want people to tell us what we want to hear. Don't confront me with sin. Don't tell me what God has said about that thing. I'm taking my cues from the world. What is acceptable? What do the quote-unquote respectable people of the world accept, and what can I get away with? Not standing for God. Not solely upon His Word. And I'm convinced in many respects, looking back at the history of where marriage and the, the where society is today upon marriage, the church lost that battle decades and generations ago because we were unwilling to be zealous before the Lord and say, no, that's not marriage. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but it's not marriage. God defined it, and it's only this. And I know there are those who have beat that drum and They should be celebrated. They shouldn't be despised. Christian zealots aren't wanted. And sometimes that zealousy, that that, that zealousy, zealousy is not a word. Zeal is the correct word when you're talking about zealousy. That zeal might be those within your own home. It could possibly be those within the church. It could be those that you work with could be all kinds of folks, but we should expect it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. From a biblical perspective, this is one of the clearest things that we as believers grab onto. Maybe not one of the clearest things. That may be too bold a statement. Matthew 28. Verses 18 through 20. Does anybody know what Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 is? It's the Great Commission. Good job. The Great Commission. This is where Jesus says to his disciples, to you and me who are believers in Jesus Christ, that we go out and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and teach them to walk in obedience to my word. Here's the thing, and I just want to throw this out there. If we're not standing upon the Word of God, if we ourselves are not disciples in an uncompromising way, how do we make disciples? How do we say this is a truth that you should uphold when we ourselves are unwilling to uphold that truth? The world's accusation of the church that it is full of hypocrites is absolutely true. And it is, and we should expect that. Why? Because we're sinful people that have been regenerated by God himself, through the offering and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, we are not perfect people. But we have to deal with that hypocrisy. We have to own it. We have to say, yes, that's true. There are hypocrites. But here we are, when we talk about the Great Commission, what did Jesus commission us to do? What did he send us out? To make disciples, those who will follow him. Those who will stand up on the word of God. Those who will put the time and the effort and the work in to dig deep and build their life upon the rock and not be content with just 
the surface, building it upon the sand. In Matthew chapter 10, turn a few few pages back here. In Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus sends out some of his disciples sort of in a preliminary way, hey, go out, start telling people about me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Just pause right there. Sheep and wolves, they don't mix. Right? We, we prayed this morning uh, for Ty and, and all the things that are surrounding there, but it's not just that. I heard a news report just the other day. That there are uh, all, many of the beef associations and those things, the cattle associations are seeking with the USDA to release some emergency funds because it's been such a odd, uh, not only weather-wise, but feed-wise. All the, uh, the hurdles to overcome this year have been greater in their minds than they ever have been. And so therefore, we, have, we need some help. We need some assistance. All that aside, we, we talk about in one, one little corner of our experience, of my experience, with somebody that I'm concerned with, and, and there's a problem with predators. That here are the coyotes, and they're taking, I mean, they're just waiting in the trees for the cows to drop their calves, and they're going to swoop in and eat it. It's the same thing. Jesus doesn't say, I'm sending you forth with a flock. You're all going to get along. You're just going to kind of mull around together. I, you know, he says, I'm sending you as sheep into the wolves. I'm sending you into enemy territory, which is an interesting thought. Jesus said, listen, the gates of hell shall not overcome. Right? What that means is that the gates are closed, that we are here standing at the enemy's gates, and they can't hold us out. Not only that, but there's no victory. We are sent into enemy territory. We should expect some pushback. He goes on. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. Sounds like a great time, right? You're going to be given to councils. You're going to be scourged. You're going to be persecuted heavily for my name's sake. In other words, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we would expect some critics. We in our country today, we're not suffering heavy persecution like, like Jesus is describing for his disciples here. But we do encounter those who will label us as fanatic, who will minimize the things that we believe in who will say, well, just the Bible is just a compilation of stories. It's a bunch of myths put together. It's pretty good advice, but you know, you really can't live by it. It isn't God's revealed word. And they'll try to minimize and they'll attack God and his word. They'll attack God and his disciples, you and I. The ambassadors that he sent to represent here, him here in this world have been sent and amongst enemy territory, and that's who we're representing him to. And it's sad that some of those are of his own house. That there would be some discrepancy between what the reality of the gospel is and what God has revealed throughout his word from Genesis all the way to Revelation and the application of that. 
It's part of the reason we're going to kick off Galatians next week, because what is Galatians primarily about? It's about the gospel. What is it? Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you should believe another gospel, which is not another gospel? Yet here we have Christianity at large that's willing to be accepting of other gospels. We stand firm. Now, in John chapter 16, verse 33, John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Right, And I just want to emphasize that. Jesus is here speaking to his disciples, and he's telling them all these things that are going to happen. There is a confirmation and a knowing that he reveals to us so that we might be established. Right, That we would expect critics. And these other things that we're going to talk about this morning, the motive for that critic criticism and all of those things, helps us to stand firm, helps us to be unwavering. But he goes on, he says, in the world you shall have tribulation. We're going to have hard times. We're going to be those who are labeled as fanatics, as zealots, as weirdos. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There's this celebration of victory, and there should be this rejoicing at the end. You remember the early disciples in the book of Acts? Uh, that Here is Peter and John, and they were, as they went in the beautiful gate, and they healed the man, silver and gold have I none, you know, all that, that whole scene. And they get put in jail, and they're there, and they go on this mock trial, and they're, they're commanded, you can't preach in the name of Jesus. And they're like, listen. You determine if it's right or wrong, whatever, but we're going to preach in the name of Jesus. We're uncompromising in that. And what do they do? They go and tell the rest of the disciples that are there in Jerusalem about it. And what happens? They rejoice and they're enthusiastic because they are counted worthy to share the sufferings of Christ, to be persecuted for his namesake. They counted it an honor that they would have hardship because they stood for Christ. In other words, they understood that they were in good company. They understood what that looked like. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Jesus, again speaking to his disciples, says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you no, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house, divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In other words, as people choose a side, they choose to be for God or they choose to be against God. It causes contention even amongst those within a family. And it is a sad and a hard truth and reality that, that is sometimes the case. Now, it doesn't matter if it's in a family, doesn't matter if it's at work, doesn't matter if it's just people at the grocery store that we have the opportunity to witness with, doesn't matter if it's other believers, we should expect it. 
one more reference here, and I realize that this is sort of a, a horse that's on the ground and we've, we've been kicking it for a while, but we need to expect this. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Yea, and all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a pretty clear cut and dry statement. We should expect criticism. We should expect persecution. We, just, we should expect those who would push against us, that would mock us, that would scorn us, that would reject us as a result of our discipleship, of our service to Christ. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. He says, listen, there's going to be those who try to deceive and that are being deceived. But what is his exhortation to Timothy, this young man, this young pastor? He says, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. Continue thou in the word of God. That's his exhortation. Don't give up. Don't be swayed by all of this stuff that's happening here. This picture here, that's a, that's a picture of William Booth who started the Salvation Army, uh, was in his day and age one of the chief Christian zealots. This is obviously not a particularly flattering picture. The caption says, General Booth tooting his own horn or something along. His own trumpeter. says his own trumpeter. Right? They would go around, they would sing, they would praise God, and it was a revival movement within the areas that William Booth and the Salvation Army operated. And I don't know much about the Salvation Army today and what they're doing or where their doctrine stands or any of those things. However, I do know that there was a sincere effort on the part of William Booth and his family and the Salvation Army in that day and age to reach people with the gospel, the genuine and sincere gospel of Jesus Christ, and to develop them into disciples who would stand wholly and completely upon the Word of God. And they were mocked and they were scorned, and they were rejected everywhere that they went. They were made fun of here in publications. But they didn't waver. They expected the critics, and just as we read here, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And they doubled down on their devotion. Now here's the thing. We understand that when we come to criticism, we need to understand that it isn't personal, right? We understand that there will be critics, that we're going, they're going to come against us, but we have to understand that it isn't you or me per se, but they're standing against God. Those who would criticize us for our devotion to the Lord, as familiar as they may be, even if they're within our own family, are not against us, but ultimately they're against God. And so for you and I as believers, we have to resist reacting to that. We have to resist being angry. We have to understand that vengeance is not ours to execute. It's something that God is going to do. God's going to deal with the critics. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verses 7 and 8. 
For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He, therefore, that despises, despises not man, but God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Right? Don't take it personal. We may have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody in the grocery line store, whatever. They may reject it. They may be offensive to that. They, they may be antagonistic and even near unto violent as a result of our taking the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Don't take it personal. They're not rejecting you as a person. They're rejecting God. In John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, Jesus talks about this. And we've talked about this to a great degree because we need to understand that the reason they don't like us talking about it is because it's an expose of where they stand. That here it is, the gospel of Christ, they encounter it, and it becomes that mirror that they look into, and it exposes where their heart and where their deeds, as Jesus would say, are. They're not serving, they're in darkness. And they don't like the light shining in because it's bright and it's unsavory to them to realize where they stand. That's what Jesus talked about. The reason that they don't like it is because of where they are, is because of the sin that they have in their life. And it doesn't matter if they are in a church or in a false religion or just an atheist, no matter where it is, the underlying cause from a biblical perspective, is their rejection of God. Their rejection of his standard. Their rejection of what he has said is right and wrong. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. The exhortation to you and I would be to not take it personal, but to deal with it differently. He says in these verses, having your conversation honest, that means valuable or virtuous, worthy, it's, it's of some merit among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king is supreme or in the governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. I don't know if you've ever encountered anybody that, that talks about the wars that have happened throughout history and how they're all you know, caused by religious conflict and all of those kinds of things, which is a, which is a misrepresentation. It's casting something that, that is right and virtuous in a light that is wrong. The results of those wars are, are, are not a result of Christianity and the doctrines that God has established in his word. They're resulting from the outward expression of the inward lusts of the flesh that people hold. Right? We read that in James. Where do wars and strivings, where do those things come from? They come from your lusts. Right? It is a result of sin that there is war and death and all those things. It has nothing to do. Right? You look at the Crusades as, as an example. They're not motivated by sincerely going over there. We're going to reach these people for Christ. No, 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 no. 
The Crusades were effectively established to satisfy the lusts of the papacy. Right? Listen, our coffers are getting low. We'll send these guys over there. People will support the war. We'll take that. Not only that, but we'll begin to sell indulgences and all these. I mean, follow the money. It's a sad commentary, but that's that's where it's at. Had nothing to do with Christ. Had nothing to do with the gospel. Had everything to do with sin, which is exactly what we read in the Word of God. So what do we do? As believers, we live a life that is honoring to the Lord. We, by our good works, represent Him. And we put to silence those who would have those ignorant understandings. Why? Because here it is. This person, Sam, is telling me that he's a Christian, that the reason he lives the way that he lives is because he's serving God. And what do I see? Love of God, and I see love of people. They see us engage in a way that is consistent with our profession of faith, and what they reap is a benefit of that, and what they reap in their engagement with us, and they see us engaging with other people, is a representation of the grace and the mercy that God has extended to us. We talked about in Sunday school as we kind of wrap that up uh, several couple months ago, establishing those spheres of influence. In other words, where are we going to purpose in this next year for our outlet to be? Who is watching us that we purpose in this next year to represent consistently the Lord Jesus Christ by the way that we conduct ourselves. And that's what's being talked about here. That their understanding will be changed as they witness our life. Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are lights, that we shine our lights so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. In Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we're having this discussion in this chapter about discipleship, about the young women teaching the older women, other way around, the older women teaching the younger women, and the older men teaching the younger men how they should conduct themselves. Right, this disciple process that we are being instructed by those who are engaged in our life, that we would teach them how they might be disciples, how they might be de devoted followers of Christ. And we pick this up in verse 7, in all things, and this is the summary of everything, to the old and to the young men, and to the old and to the young women. In all things, showing thyself a pattern or an example of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say against you. Now, there are always going to be evil things to say against us, but the point is that they don't stick. Right? It's incongruous with the life that we're leading. So when somebody hears about that, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know that guy. That's You're completely wrong. That is not how they are at all. The motive of the critic is to preserve that thin veil of propriety, right? I want to keep this person that I have put out there for everybody to understand who I am. I want to keep that out there so that nobody knows who I really am. That's their motivation. I want to hide the sinfulness 
from the world around me and from myself. I don't want it revealed. I don't want it to be understood. They want to conceal their true self. Our witness of the gospel to the world is to be stewarded in those circumstances. Right? Here we are. We have a responsibility in how we do that. We have a responsibility in the life that we lead. And, and if we're looking at this in all things, this isn't something that we are only doing when people are looking. This is a consistent application of God's Word where in everything that we do... Now, is it going to be perfect? No. And probably, to be honest, the people that are closest to us see the worst of us. That's where it's the hardest. We're the most familiar with it. They, they, they see our struggles... We have to understand that. And we have to begin to address that. As parents, we have to begin to address that with our children, with, with those that we work with day in and day out. We have to address that with them. We have to, we have to own up to those things. But, it, but the long and short is this isn't a turn it on and turn it off thing. This is an always on. This is something that we consistently do. Right? I've phrased it this way in the past. We only have one life. I don't have a church life and a work life, and a school life, and a public life. I have one life. I have a Christian life. I represent Jesus in everything that I do, whether I represent him or whether I don't. So that means that everywhere that I go, in every instance that I'm in, whatever I'm doing, wherever I am, we should be those who are manifesting God and the gospel to those who are around us. All the time. We put them to silence with godliness. Now, you know as well as I know, we, we, we read a verse earlier that this isn't something that I can do in my own strength. This is the Holy Spirit within us, right? We're going to get, as we get into Galatians, one of the things that we talk about is the fruits of the Spirit. Those things that come out of us as a result of being in that relationship with God. Him developing us more and more into the image of Christ. Right? It, it, it gets easier in some respects. And we'll have to humble ourselves in other respects because sometimes the things that we encounter, when, when it becomes easier to recognize them, right? this is something that's gone on for a very long time, and now I have to humble myself to acknowledge and to bring this up, to, to seek forgiveness, to do the things that need to be done, perhaps to address the hypocrisy that I've held that I may not have realized. It isn't personal. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting God. Michael is not rejecting David. She's rejecting God. There are times when a response is demanded of us, right? And this isn't a vengeful thing. This isn't something that we do to uh, make somebody look foolish, but there are times when a response is demanded of us. First Peter 3.15, right? We need to be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks for the hope that lies within us. In Jude 1.3, it says we need to contend for the faith. We need to stand up for it. Right here we are. We rightly divide the word of truth. We have the, the word of God. We're going to stand firm upon it. And that means we should be able to get a, give a reasoned answer, a biblical answer, for the why. 
In John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Your apologetics, your standing there and the answers that you give as convincing as they may be, the evidences that we may use to help solidify that understanding in them is not going to save them. But the word of God does. The word of God is what sets them free. So in our interactions, when, when a de- response is demanded of us, in word and in deed, it needs to reflect the word of God. That's why we have to be rooted and founded upon that first and foremost. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue or abide, if you stay in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There are going to be those times when we have to stand firm. We have to be somewhat more direct. We have to be antagonistic for lack of better terms, somewhat offensive in our presentation of the gospel. Not that we are vile or mean or anything like that, but that's the way it will be perceived. The people who are hearing it will understand it in that way. That doesn't change the presentation. What's happened to the church at large in the last 50 years is that there's this growing understanding that somehow we should not be offensive, that somehow we should be more inclusive, we should be far more accepting of those things, we should be willing, as it were, to condone people. Let's get If, if they're not in the church, where are they hearing the gospel? Well, to be honest, they should be hearing it from you when they're not in the church, and that would be why they would come to church, but right, they don't want to hear it. And the church has taken that model and said, listen, let's put this into practice. Let's not stand on truth necessarily. Let's let's give them a watered-down version that isn't offensive, that doesn't demand anything of them, that doesn't confront them with sinfulness. And what it brings about is pretty much a social club where relativism reigns. The Word of God is not the source of truth. And it's problematic, in, at least in the Western church today. We want to stand firm. Sometimes our response is going to be offensive to those who are around us. Now, even though we may be persecuted and attacked and labeled a zealot, even though there are going to be those times when we have to give a response and it's not a popular response, even though all around us we are surrounded by things that would contradict the Word of God, we don't want to be swayed. We want to stand firm. We don't want to be those who would bow down or bend over would, would would in any way, shape, or form be changed in our opinion, excuse me, not in our opinion, be changed in the truths of God's Word. And let me clarify that. If I am encountered with somebody and I'm having a conversation and I need to reform my thinking because I hold some unbiblical position, whatever it may be, right? I need to repent of that. I need to say, Lord, I've got some wrong thinking here. Instruct me by your spirit and through your word or correct me. That's appropriate. That's, that's, That's fine. 
But when the world begins to say, or the church begins to say, or or people out there that you work with, or those those critics start to say, you're too fundamental, you're too hardcore, you're too whatever it may be, don't be swayed. Look at me in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. As Michael stands there, as I, and I'm convinced with arms crossed and maybe tapping her foot and kind of lectures David. I don't want to put David's entire response out there as an appropriate response because I don't think that it is. I think that David, in his, in his zeal, oversteps his bounds. I think that he enters into the same sarcasm and the same chiding that he is receiving which we shouldn't do. Let's read these verses. And David said unto Michael in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 21, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father, and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. Now, all David had to say was, listen, this is my service to the Lord. This is why I'm doing it. I am willing to rejoice and celebrate in my as I serve the Lord. I'm I'm willing to do these things, and I do them before the Lord. It is for His glory, it is for His honor. That's all he needed to say. Now David didn't say that. He's like, listen, Michael, God chose me, not anybody from your father's house. He chose me. Right? I mean, he, there's a little jab there, and we don't need to engage in that. But he is correct in saying, listen, when people ask you, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God's telling them, he gives them the Shema, this is why you train your kids when you rise up, when you sit down and you lay down. Why? So that when they ask you, you can tell them, this is God. This is what he's done. This is why we serve him. That's the response. This is God. This is what he's done. And this is why we serve him. David says it was before the Lord, right? We are serving him. We are honoring him in bringing the ark into Jerusalem, into this tabernacle that we have established to serve and to honor him so that we might offer offerings and bring sacrifices and do those things which he has commanded us to do, that we might be his disciples. And yeah, we got it wrong, but you know what? We figured out by careful study of his word, what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. And we engage in that and we're going to rejoice. He goes on in verse 22. He says, and I will yet be more vile than this and will be base in mine own sight and, and of the maid servants, which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Now what David is saying here, it, when he says vile, it doesn't mean vile. It means base. He says, I will, I will humble myself before the Lord I will do those things that he has commanded me to do. And even though people may misunderstand it, even though people like you, Michael, may not be accepting of it, you may criticize it, you may even persecute me for it, I will do whatever you may deem is vile or wrong in those circumstances because it is right in the eyes of God. And I realize that that doesn't come across 100% in this translation here. And to be honest, in most of the modern translations that I read, it didn't. But that's what it means in the Hebrew. 
Whatever you perceive to be vile and wrong, that's what I'm going to engage in. Why? Because you're saying that God is wrong and God is not wrong and therefore I'm going to serve him. And I will be base in my own sight. I will serve him. I will do whatever he wants me to do in whatever way he wants me to do. And those, he talks about these handmaids, right? Those people who were there with me, who were celebrating, who were banging their cymbals and blowing the trumpets and shouting and rejoicing and skipping through the streets with me with the ark of God, those people get it. And I'll be held in esteem, in honor by those people who are the people of God. That's what David is saying. And that's where our heart should be. We shouldn't be swayed. In fact, when we encounter this criticism, it should be somewhat of a motivator for us because I'm convinced that this is what Jesus intended it to be in the life of the believer. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Matthew chapter 5. We already talked about the early church and how they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to engage in those things, to be counted worthy, as it were. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are ye, and that word blessed literally means happy. We're enthusiastic, we're, we're rejoicing. Blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Right? We have two things here. Number one, great is our reward. We have this understanding that God is rewarding us as we are serving him. Now, I'm not saying that is our motivation or the reason why we're doing it, but there it is. That God is rewarding us as we are faithful disciples. And not only that, he says, two, you're in good company. They persecuted the prophets just like this. If we're doing the Christian life right, we're going to be in good company. We're going to be amongst those who were also persecuted for their faith. We're going to be amongst the Peters and the Johns and the Pauls and the Hoseas and the Moseses and the Calebs and the Joshuas. We're going to be amongst those who are examples of faithfulness, of God's faithfulness and of their trust in him. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, I'll just read it to you. It says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It's hard to be the person that is out there all the time, that is facing that persecution. Even though there is rejoicing, even though there is celebration, even though we are in good company, it can be hard and it can be exhausting. But the exhortation to you and I and the encouragement that we have is that don't be, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't grow weary. Keep up the good fight. It keep, can continue to stay engaged in those things that God has called us to. We're almost done this morning. I want to give you a couple of things. Number one, some div divine insight here. Divine insight. Let's look into what, what God has done here. This is in 2 Samuel as I said, God is going to deal with those critics. And he's going to do so in a way that only he can do it. 2 Samuel chapter, 20, uh, chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. 
We already read David's answer. Let's look at verse 23. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Now, I'm convinced that this is something that God has done completely and wholly. That this isn't something that, that David has withheld himself, and, and that's why they haven't had children. I don't think that's the case. I think that God is here dealing with his critics. And we have to understand why God would do this. Okay, First of all, Psalm 127 gives us some confirmation, right? That, that Well, let me just turn there and read it to you. Psalm 127. <clears throat> Verse 1, and I, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Low, or continuing upon that same thought is what the low means. Children are a heritage or a blessing, a provision of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Now, I want you to understand that here in, in David's day and age, in their culture, in their society, that this is key, right? That, that women desire to have children. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about that. Isaiah looking forward to this time when, listen, there aren't enough men around, and there's this, listen, this desire to have children, to be a mother, because that's part of the understanding of blessing from God for those women. And there's this understanding for you and I that children are God's heritage. It's something that he has blessed us with. And that only he does that. And that only he can do that. So here, when it says that she didn't have any children, I'm convinced that this is something that God is doing. Now, it's not God in a vengeful spirit. He's not somehow, listen, all you wronged me, so I'll wrong you back. No, as we studied through uh, the, the book of Hosea, we understand God has a different heart than that. He would do something so drastic to Michael so that her heart might turn toward him. Now, I'm convinced based on what we read here, that that never happened. That she would continue to despise David, that she would continue to despise the people of God, and that she would continue to despise God himself. I don't think that her heart ever softened. Couldn't tell you the reasons why, couldn't tell your motivations, other than there was some uncertainty, some sin in that in there that she did not want revealed, whatever it was. But this is something that God has done, that he has withheld children from her as a means to reach her, as a means to bring her back to himself. In Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. In other words, those who are outside of the body of Christ, that we walk in wisdom toward them. That we would understand, that we would expect these critics, that we would understand that it's going to come, that we would, that we would understand their motive and the reason that they would be critical and rejecting of God. So that we might redeem the time better, so that we might be those who are more thoroughly equipped, more prepared to answer their questions, that we can engage with them, that we might represent the Lord to them in an effective way. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. 
even though David is not a great example of this and he returned jab for jab, that's not how we operate. We, re, we, we let our speech be seasoned with grace. We understand they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting God. So therefore, we're going to continue to be compassionate toward them. If we're honest, right, we understand that's a hard thing. That sometimes we have to kind of pat ourselves down and smooth our hair back and be like, okay, take a deep breath. I might have to walk away from this conversation or I'm going to ruin my witness for the Lord here, whatever it may be. But we understand there is some other calling for us. That our representation of the Lord, we need to be walking in wisdom toward them, letting our speech be seasoned with grace. First Corinthians chapter <clears throat> chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six. And I bring this up in regard to Michael because as I said, there is a desire, and culturally, this is the understanding of blessing in many respects for women in that culture and society in David's time. And all I'm saying is that here, when we see the hand of God come upon somebody, there should be some understanding, some compassion that we understand because we have been there, right? We understand the misery. We understand the separation. We, were, we understand the, the, the stress and all of those things associated being separated from God. And our desire would be just as God's is that they would come to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Right? We were sinners before we came to Jesus Christ and were justified freely by his shed blood. When we have an expectation wrongly that the world or that those who are even naming the name of Christ but are completely rejecting of his word would act and behave as true disciples of Jesus Christ, we put an unfair expectation upon them. And not only that, we're not out looking for the works of their flesh. We're out here looking for the salvation of their souls. We don't want to bring them into legalism where they're now in bondage to a false gospel. We want to see those things come out of and be the fruit of genuine conversion. The reality that we were sinners who were saved by Jesus' shed blood should help us to empathize, should help us to be compassionate for those that we engage with, should be for us, in some respects, a motivator to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ that would push us out of our comfort zone and into those spheres of influence. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's where we stand. That's the reality that we abide in. It's always going to be true of us. But those critics that are out there, they're not. And so when God deals with them, when God begins to lay his hand upon them, as it were, as he does with Michael, to try to bring them to himself, because God's not willing that any should perish. But he's long-suffering to us, word, 
not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, that all would come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we see this, when we, when we experience, when we have the opportunity to bear burdens with those who are outside of the faith, perhaps, it's an opportunity for us to shine light into what is potentially happening. Rudyard Kipling, who wrote The Jungle Book and Ricky Tiki Tavi and some of those books, had an opportunity to be on a ship with William Booth. And, and I want to read you what he said because he interacts, and after a period of time, he's sort of fed up with all the tambourines and all those things that are happening on this boat. And he tells William Booth this. He says, and this is reading from his uh, journal that he wrote, I saw him walking backward in the dusk over the uneven wharf, his cloak blown upwards, tulip fashion, over his gray head while he beat a tambourine in the face of the singing, weeping, praying crowd who had come to see him off. So this is what he witnesses. As General, as General Booth gets on this boat, this is what he sees. This is what Rudyard Kipling sees. And he says, I talked much with General Booth during that voyage. Like the young ass I was, I expressed my distaste at his appearance on Ivor Cargill Wharf. Right? So here it is, right? But why would you make a mockery of yourself? Why would you put yourself so low? Why would you be so unrespectable? I don't like your methods. You're shoving Jesus down our throat. You're too fundamental. You're too fanatic. You're too zealous for God. And this is the response. This is what William Booth responded. And this should, in many respects, be our response. It is kind, it is compassionate, yet it is wholly accepting of the truth. That like David, I will abase myself. I have not yet begun to do the things for God that I need to be doing for him. And I like the way he starts it off. He says, young feller, bending over great bows at me. If I thought I could win one more soul to the Lord by walking on my head and playing the tambourine with my toes, I'd learn how. In other words, just as David said, I will be more vile than this. I will humble myself more than this. William Booth said, whatever it takes. If I'm going to represent the Lord, if I'm going to stand upon his truth, if I'm going to be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I, I understand. I'm Joseph Kipling. There, there, there are going to be critics, and right now you're being one of them. But I'm going to serve the Lord wholly and completely. If you think it's ridiculous that we would play tambourines, I will play them on my head with my feet if that would bring one more soul to Christ. I will lay my life down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is my reasonable service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be challenged by your word. And I ask, Lord, that as we uh, take some of these principles, as we begin to understand, Lord, from your word, why, where people stand, why they would criticize, why they would be rejecting of you, Lord, I pray that it helps us to understand not only where they are 
and their desperate need for you, Lord, but that it would help us to understand how great the salvation that we receive from Jesus Christ is. And not only that, Lord, I pray for your grace for all of us here that we might be those like David, like William Booth, who would take upon us the mantle of your ambassadors, that we would be willing to humble ourselves to operate in whatever call and purpose you have for each one of us. I praise you, Lord, that you have called us indeed, that, Lord, you have, by your Spirit, wooed us into a relationship with you through your Son's shed blood and through that alone. And I pray, Lord, that as we encounter those critics, that, Lord, we would redeem that time well, that we would understand that this is something that you have ordained, that we would engage in that conversation. And, Lord, knowing that that is your call for each one of us, I pray that you would urge us by your Spirit to be in your Word. And, Lord, that as Jesus said, that your Spirit would lead us in truth, that it would instruct us. We praise you and we thank you. Lord, as we have opportunity to fellowship for just a little while this morning, we commit that time into your hands. Knowing, Lord, that of that time and that fellowship and that engagement with other believers, there is encouragement, there is uplifting, there is rejoicing together like those who celebrated with David entering into Jerusalem. May we not forsake it, Lord. In Jesus' name, we ask and we give thanks. Amen.